This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their favourite things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain a genuine insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. James Valentine is a journalist, musician, author, television presenter and family man. As if all that wasn't enough, in an incredible feat of multitasking, industriousness and longevity, he's also presented a hugely popular radio show for the ABC consistently for the last 30 years. James, given you're the one usually asking the questions, mate, how do you define the process of having the tables reversed and having to choose your fine items? What? Who? Who are you? <laughs> Why? No, I hate this. Stop it now. I don't want to do it. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, Nigel, you know, as a radio person... I obviously love both the sound of my own voice and talking about myself. So, yeah, perfectly happy. Very, very good. I'd also, I'd also, some of that premise of the intro, that's like a list of things I have done. I always think it's a bit, you know, it's a bit of a lie when he goes, journalist, musician, this, that. At the moment, I'm a broadcaster. Yeah, you, and, you are a, a singular dimension Muppet, not a multitasking That's, legend. I am not a multitasking, you know, miracle. Uh, <laughs> I'm just sort of, you know, I'm, I'm hacking through whatever I can hack through at any one point. Right, okay. <laughs> but, but in your in the panoply of your life, you've done a few things. I've done a few things here and there. Um, always sort of seeking the same kind of thing, sort of personal stimulation, and then, um, which sounds a little bit uncomfortable, um, but... and. Yeah, you know, it's really that. I'm always just, I'm, I'm largely seeking to amuse myself and engage myself. You actually want to enjoy your job? Yeah. How dare you? Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. That, that, that notion, my dad, if you were talking about work satisfaction, he, he wouldn't, he just wouldn't understand what you mean. No. The notion that you go to work and actually get fulfilment from mm. it. So, Well, like your, your, your family background may be similar in that, I would go so far as to say happiness was not necessarily a concept encouraged. Yes. That like, if you said, but I want to be happy, they go... I'm sorry, what, what do you mean? Um, things like duty, responsibility, respectability, um, those sort of things were way more important than your own happiness as such. You didn't, you didn't do things to seek, you know, like, like I'm probably over-seeking to stimulate the pleasure part of my brain. Yes. Uh, I think my father gave that up at about 16. That is so interesting. <laughs> it, it is, th- th- there were two things my dad would say. One, if I get to four score and ten, that then, you know, I thank the Lord, then, mm. then that's, I've had a, a good run. Mm. But his parenting uh, philosophy was if I can get you to 18 and you are not in jail he'd often say this then I've I've done my job you know, okay <laughs> set fairly, the bar low, fairly low bar, <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> like, if I can get you 18 you're alive you know like well done uh, off you go out into life now, now the trouble is I could talk to you Probably for three hours without mm. even getting to any of your mm. choices, but I'm going to uh, mention your film. You chose The Producers, oh, okay. 1967, mm. Mel Brooks. Yep. Why? Yeah. The Producers is something, it, look, it just has so much meaning for me, and I think it's just one of the great films. Like, if you ask me my favourite films, all of them will tend to be about show business. Like, I right. love Cabaret, I love okay. The Producers, I love uh, Woody Allen's Broadway, Danny Rose. Like, and they're, they're all, there's another funny little English film called Funny Bones, which is quite obscure. Jerry Lewis and, and Lee Evans. These are my favourite films. They're all show business. They're right. all, that's what they're about. And they're all from a different era. 
they're all old too. So yeah, yeah I haven't been to the movies for about twenty-seven <laughs> years. Um, the producers are ninety-six. The, the producers I love because one of the one of the first things, one of my first like big professional jobs was I worked with Joe Camilleri. So I'm about twenty, and I get a gig with Joe Camilleri, and <clears throat> so I've gone from like journeyman kind of saxophone player around Melbourne, just doing whatever gig there is, wedding band, you know, bad swing band, and this Bar sort mitzvahs. of stuff. Bar mitzvahs, exactly, all that sort of stuff. And I get a gig with Joe. And so I'm off on the road in this, between between Joe Depp and the Falcons and the Black Sorrows, he had a band called the Char Band, which was a 12-piece sort of salsa band. So I'm in the horn section doing this sort of stuff. The singer is a, the, one of the other singers is a woman called Jane Clifton, who's an actress and performer. Now, Jane is, you know, feisty and tough and fantastic. And, and so I'm getting, you know, I'm getting a lesson in show business from you know, guys that have been around for 20 years already. You know, it's, 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 it's wonderful. Jane says, you've got to see the producers. And so I go and see the producers. And this is, again, you know, it harks to an era where you, there's no VHS. There's, no, you want, there's, there's only movies on television or the repertory cinemas, things like the Valhalla and the Carlton Movie House and this, and this sort of stuff. So I'm in Melbourne. So I go and see the producers. The producers is just, the original producers is incredibly funny all the way through. But it's also an essential treatise on show business. Explain, explain. The, it, it says essentially the business of show is business. We're here to make money. Um, the money is honey. Money is honey. The premise is I'll make more money if it's not a hit. That's the essential yep. joke then it turns out to be a hit. So the other essential lesson is no one knows what a hit is. No one can ever pick what's going to be a hit, what's going to work. We all think we can. We all go, you know, you're doing this because you want it to be the number one podcast in the world. It might be. Yeah. Or it may not. <laughs> you know, like there's no way of predicting this. So then what I love about the producers is I've tracked it through my life. So, I've, so I saw... All the remakes. I saw all the remakes. So I saw it on stage. I, you know, I'm not someone who travels a lot, but I happened to be in New York. It was on Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick in the lead roles unbelievable to be sitting in a Broadway theatre. The theatre they talk about in the producers is the theatre over the road from where you were sitting watching Wonderful. it. Wonderful. You know, fantastic. Then the final, so then it comes out as a movie, that wasn't too bad. But the final kicker with the producers is watch series four of Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David where Larry is cast as Max Bialystok in The Producers and they replay the whole joke of The Producers through the whole series, culminating in, in Mel Brooks and um, Anne Murray sitting in a bar revealing that they've cast Larry so that it's a flop. <laughs> But it turns out to be a hit. Ah, they ah, do the whole ah. thing again. It's fantastic. I, I was weeping with this sort of vast sort of um, just here's my whole life. Like here's me remembering Jane introducing this film to me and what it meant to me at the time and all this sort of stuff. Just all the jokes being done done again in, and with, with Larry David doing it. It was just unbelievably but beautiful. It, but isn't it wonderful when a, an item mm. means that much to yeah. you? So, so in your honour, I watched that film. Right. And I hadn't seen it before. And it's almost the entire film is worth it for the line, where did I go right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's where did I go right? <laughs> but there's so many quotable lines. Gene, it's Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel, and it's just... You know, it's incredibly funny in so many ways. I'm wet. I'm hysterical. Um, like I said to somebody the other day, which felt dangerous in this in Me Too moment, it was a young per young female producer and like radio producer, and she was a bit sort of embarrassed about putting herself forward. And I just said, "Listen, baby, if you got it, flaunt it." <laughs> 
Now, what I realised was that that's a line from the producers <laughs> where he's yelling at a at a well-endowed young woman in the street, oh, baby, if you've got it, flood it! You know? <laughs> and I realised that I hope she never goes and finds that line. She'll think much more poorly of me. It, you know? it, it is so astonishing. <laughs> Astonishingly non-PC. Mm. As, as, you can't help but think of Weinstein when you're looking at... at, at yeah. And, and there's it's, the, a, it's another time. It's another time. <laughs> and it's got the original sexy nurse in Lee Meredith. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Dancing yeah. in a bikini. Ulla take transcription now. Ulla dictation. <laughs> you know, exactly. It's so... It's, but, it's, but it's very, very revelatory about what it's like to put on a show, you yeah. know, like and, and what it actually really means and just the sheer practicality of it and the sheer impossibility of knowing how this is going to go. Just the sheer lovableness of Gene Wilder mm. without doing anything. Mm. You just look at him and yeah. think, y- you've got this presence on yeah. screen that, uh, you know, yeah. you're gorgeous. And I think, see, that's Gene, that's 67, I don't know, has he made Chocolate Factory by then? I, I think don't this is think fairly so. early in Gene yeah. Wilder's career. I don't know if it's the breakthrough sort of role, but it's fairly early on. So, yeah, it's just this incredible presence. It's like, and it's also like when you, when you watch films of that era, there's nothing else going on except the frame, you know, the camera will be reasonably still, the acting takes place in the frame. So it's all acting, it's all face and eyes, eyes and gesture. Yeah. It's not it's not cut, you know, like we watch so much stuff now that there's so much cutting and editing and so much sort of effect put onto it that it can dominate the acting, whereas these are like old style, almost like old style dance films where it's just wide shot, Gene Kelly's going to dance, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so you set the bar high, but mm. you've raised it with your book because you've chosen Winnie the Pooh mm. and you're about to hear a grown man cry because I adore, mm. I just adore, adore those books. Mm. Tell me why you have chosen them. Um, so now we're, we're leaping back in history, uh, obviously. 1920s, so, wasn't it? Well, it's, yeah, it's published, I think, 27. I'm not suggesting right. you read them in the That's 1920s. Right. But. <laughs> the 1920s. Well, I chose Winnie the Pooh because it's a book I can never remember. I, I don't remember reading because it was read to me and read to me probably by my mother from the editions that she was given to, which she was given as a child. So you had these crumbly sort of hardback editions, which, you know, um, were beautiful themselves. The pages are dry and old and yellow and that sort of stuff. Wonderful drawings. And then you've got the beautiful E.H. Shepherd illustrations, you know, absolutely magnificent. So they're read to, read to me and then you read them for yourself. And then what I found is that I can go back and, you know, it might be five years, maybe I'd read them again when I was 12 or something like that and still went, oh, these are so beautiful. Like, and... Then they remain for me a sort of touchstone of how to write. Like these are, you know, A.A. Milne is like um, Graham Greene or John le Carre where they come from this era of the perfect sentence. Every sentence is so grammatically exact without being onerous, you know, like it's so light yet it's so perfect. Like the, the language is often so light that it's almost like you can skate over the paragraph. You've got to come back and then go, Oh, that's so great! What you're saying there, you know, it's so beautifully constructed. So it's just, it just remains with me as such a beautiful thing. Um, and it's, and it's, and it's like a lot of your first experiences. This is the first book I really loved. I don't know that I can love a book anymore. Nothing subsequently can 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 really ever touch the love I have for Winnie the Pooh, you know, because it's the first one. And there was so much right about it mm. fr- from the. I mean, you're talking about the the way that he wrote, but even the use of capital letters, where, you, you know, yep. Eeyore was having a very bad day, yeah. and, and it's capital A, capital V. Yeah. And, and does the Valentine family do poo sticks? 
Uh, I've played poo sticks with the children, yeah. with my children. I don't know that I that I did. I can't remember doing it as a kid. But yes, I've you've walked, you've you've been somewhere. You go, it's a bridge. We can play poo sticks. That's it. Let's go. He said so that man yeah, yeah. in 1920 yeah. was writing a kiddies book. Yeah, and then in 2018, I'll be walking through Tasmania. Yeah. and you go exactly. Oh, it's a bridge. Let's and, do and it. All my kids run off, get a stick. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And the beautiful, but but also like the characters are so distinct in in Winnie the Pooh, which is. Uh, I don't know if that's... I'm going to say that's rare in those sort of books. I don't know that that's exactly accurate. But, like, how how consistent and accurate is Eeyore mm. all the time? And how often do you think... Um, um, you, you, you meet someone and go, they're a bit Eeyore, aren't they, you know? Or how often do you meet someone... How, how often do you have to work with someone who's Tigger? Yeah. You know, a little bit over-enthusiastic, not very effective. So, 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 so my, my <laughs> missus says that I am Tigger, yeah, which right. is a what my son would call a complisult. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my dad, oh, God, love him, he passed away uh, three years ago. He would read me those books and he would always read Eeyore in his Eeyore voice. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is my, I mean, one of my strongest memories of dad. Now, in Can a, you do your dad's Eeyore voice? I, I can't. <laughs> it's, it's my birthday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And all I've got that's is right. a balloon. That's right. <laughs> I had to do, there was something, it was like a fundraiser and you had to read something out, you know, that sort of thing, come along and read a piece yeah. of your favourite thing. And I read the last chapter of The House of Pooh Corner mm. where Christopher Robin says farewell yeah. to, to Winnie the Pooh. Not a dry eye in the house, including me. I know. Like, you just start crying because it's so beautiful and it's it captures so much that moment of realisation. You know, you, you can... I don't know if you can remember it, but you you can relate immediately to the feeling. You're six or seven or you're five and you're going to school and suddenly it's like, I'm not really a baby anymore, am I? I'm not... Oh, I've got to, I've got to be different now, you know? So, 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 so you were in tears on stage? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was uh, terrible. It was I, a no, I, ghastly I, moment for all. <laughs> <laughs> How horrible! Control yourself, man. <laughs> but but uh, I, I've got an embarrassing confession about Winnie the Pooh, which is I, I'm sort of offended and hate anyone bringing it into the modern world. I just want those oh, hardback books. Version. Well, any version. I want the books with the drawings that you described, yeah. you know, slightly moth-eaten. I don't want it on screen. I don't want it on radio. I just want, you know, my dad reading it to me, basically. Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not as hard and fast about that. Like, uh, I tried to read them to my children, for example, and, and gave them to my children to read. They couldn't read it. It's, right. We're too distant from that style of language. Um, Beatrix Potter, the same, these sort of, that the the, um, the gum nuts, uh, May Gibbs stuff. When you look at the language now, it just, it's it, people are speaking so differently and the style of language, it was a glorious day in the forest as we went off to have a walk. You know, <laughs> it just, the, the whole rhythm of the sentence is just so contrary to how anybody speaks or writes today that they can't see it. Like my kids can't see a black and white film either. Right. It doesn't, they just go... What is wrong with this film? <laughs> so, so, unless it starts in this sex tape, I will be yeah, showing. Right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah. yeah, they, they, yeah, security footage from the corner. They, they can understand. But, and so, I, so I'm not hard and fast about that. I can understand that it might take a while. You mightn't be able to get to it until you've had more experience. That it's like, it's like you know, you play a scratchy jazz record from the 19, you know, 20s to the 1950s. I can get it. But it's taken me a long time to be able to understand what's going on there. I don't expect my kid to suddenly go, oh, Charlie Parker, how magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I cannot tell you, James, how much I enjoyed researching your choices. Mm. And your song, 
blew my mind. Right. Now, I might have accessed it in the wrong way because right. I was reading about the bloody thing, yeah. but you chose Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick. Oh, did I? Yes. Oh, I thought I did the bark thing. <laughs> oh, Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. telling you, mate. Right, you right. chose yeah, Thick. Because yeah. that's the one I've researched. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick, yes. So, yes. so he, Ian Anderson, the, 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 the lead frontman of Jethro Tull, uh, um, played the flute. Yes. Well, that's normal for a rock band. Yes. But was mind Bendingly clever. Yeah. It, it, so yeah. many people, I hope you're not one of them because I don't want to embarrass you mm. on a podcast, but it, that album got huge success mm. without people realising it's a parody. Yeah. yeah. It, it, he, yeah. He's pretending it's about Gerald Bostock, an eight-year-old yeah. kid who wrote a poem who doesn't even exist. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Then it, it's like he, in an interview, he said, it's like airplane to airport. Mm. He was taking the piss out of Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Yeah. So he just dashed off a classic album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, yeah. so that's, that's how I accessed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Tell, tell me why you chose yeah, it. Yeah, well, yeah, well, it's true. And, and it, like, it, it, it comes from that era, so it, it comes out in something like 74, 75. 72. Like 72, is it? Yeah. Um, and that, this is an era when rock is very theatrical. Yeah. And rock is drawing on a lot of sort of elements of performance art, of theatre. You know, Skyhooks in Australia comes out of this. We're not just going to be be guys thumping it out for the pub. We're somewhat theatrical. We've got <laughs> costumes and a point and, you know, we're more about performance art. We're a bit dada. We're a yeah. bit surreal. And the album covers are really... The album yeah. covers are dense. Thick as a Brick... Well, the reason that I, that I, that I, that I loved Thick as a Brick was that I was a... I, I was a teenage flute player like my first instrument. I thought the sax was your goat no my first instrument was flute right so, so you know I was a whiz on the recorder you know like <laughs> they hand out the recorder at primary school <laughs> I was about the I was about the only kid that anybody had ever seen who could actually play it and who wanted to play so it so you were beating women off with a stick I'm, I'm you exactly. and the recorder oh, I'm just so cool <laughs> um, so I'm you know I quite liked the recorder and I, and I practiced it you know so they were sort of a bit freaked out about this um, and then so it was suggested that well he likes the recorder get him a flute you know so I started practicing the flute and I loved it I really, you know, I just liked, I was, I was, you know, you'll find this with most people who are musicians. They actually like practising. Yes. You know, because they, they start to go, oh, that's cool. Oh, if I try that, oh, that's right. Oh, that's better now, isn't it? You know, so you get into it. And so I got right into it. So by 13 or 14, I'm already, you know, like a seventh grade flute player. Like I've done all the classical exams and all that sort of stuff. But I'm also realising that this is very daggy. Um, and I'm also starting to hear all sorts of other music. And one of the first things I heard that wasn't like classical music was Thick as a Brick, which my brother bought. I've got two older brothers, six and eight years older. So they were old enough to start buying proper music of the 70s right. and bring it into the house. So I hear Thick as a Brick and go, that's a flute. <laughs> Good Lord. There is one. You know, there is one. And it's not flute going, it's flute going, it's dirty flute, you know, like it's this incredible thing. And so I sat with that album cover open reading. I've read all everything on the Thick as a Brick album cover. The, the newspaper. Which looks like a newspaper. Yes. And then, you know, you learn all the lyrics. Really don't mind if you sit this one out. Your words but a whisper. Your deafness ain't shout. And then I got to see them. My, my oldest brother took me to see Jethro Tull in about 75 or 76. They're touring Australia. They did Aqualung first half, thick as a brick in entirety, second half. <gasps> Unbelievable, you yeah. know. So. But the, the, the talent in that bloke to do yeah. it. I, I was watching this morning, in mm. researching this, uh, clips of him being interviewed 
you know, months ago. Mm. Uh, and he now looks like uh, just a sort of an, an ageing dad. Mm. But you can just see something shining out of his mm. eyes. Where oh, it, very strange. Like, basically, he comes, he comes from jazz to start with. He's a huge fan of a player called Roland Kirk, rather than Roland Kirk. Loves that, sort of, which is a sort of bit R&B jazz and that sort of stuff. Then they also come out of, like, the prog folk thing, like Steel Eye Span, you know, electric folk and that sort of stuff. They then spent, they, after that sort of period, they spend about the next 20 or 30 years as headliners at all the metal festivals. <laughs> so you go and see Metallica and Slasher and Jethro Tull. It's like, right. what? Is he the only metal flute player in the world, <laughs> you know? And then the other hilarious thing about Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull is he made, his money, made money out of music. What did he do with it? He's now Scotland's biggest salmon farmer. Fabulous. He's an enor- like he, he produces 10% of Scotland salmon or something like that. It's like, what a guy. <laughs> do, do, do you remember Adam Faith, the, the 1950s rock star? Oh, a little bit, yeah, yeah. So, so he was successful in the sort of screamy Beatlemania, pre-Beatlemania oh, yeah, way. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, um, but then at age 21, that was that? Yeah. And, and then he went off and had a salmon farming, banking or whatever yeah. life. And you go, uh, not unlike, without wanting to blow too much smoke up your backside, Mr. Mm. Valentine, mm. Uh, yourself. And, and after the break, oh, I, I wouldn't mind talking about your place and, and also referencing your rock stardom. And the salmon farming. And the salmon farming. This is the five of my life with James Valentine. Mate, your place, you've chosen it on a broad scale, mm. Ultimo, yeah. on a slightly narrower <laughs> scale, the ABC, yeah. and an even narrower scale, Studio mm. 221. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Take me through it. <laughs> well, I thought of the place was the one I found the most interesting one to think about because I couldn't quite I couldn't quite define exactly what you would mean by that. You know, when you when people say place, place that's important to you, you go well, gosh, do you mean the, you know, the... I wonder I wonder if most people think, oh, Italy, you know, I love Italy and that means a lot to me. Or New York, I, you know, I'm always invigorated when I get to New York or something like that. Like, is that how people see it? Or, oh, we've got this beautiful place we always go to on holidays and I always think so of the, that. So the joy of the question, I've deliberately mm. kept it vague mm. so people come at it in different ways. Yeah, do so, people say their bedroom or well, something? Well, yes, or, so yeah. Lane Beachley said the ocean. Yeah, right. Not, not Mona Vale right. Beach, but yeah, the yeah. ocean. Other people literally say the old armchair next to the fireplace. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so that's what I was, that's yeah. why I liked it because I was like, well, I don't really... And then I thought, I don't have a place, I don't have a geographical place that, that means anything more than, than other things. But the one place that I have been for a very long time is the ABC. And so in actual fact, it's probably the ABC, which is more of a concept than a place in a way. Um, How long? Uh, well, I started there in 87 and I did a children's television show for about four years. So you must have been a child yourself. I was a How child. How old are you, I man? Know. 87. I was, I, was, I was the only child announcer who was younger than the audience, <laughs> you know. Um, so, um, and then I did a couple of other things there. I left for about five or six years. These are, these are the fallow years where I did daytime television and it was a ghastly time. Uh, and then I came back. I've been doing radio there since 96. So it's now getting sort of 20 plus years or so. Um, and I had about two or three years filling in for everybody before that while I was trying to go, give me a job, give me a job. I love this. Give me a job, give me a job. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's so it's a lifelong thing. And it's also like I, I come from one of those families where, you know, there were radios in every room glued to the ABC. So you just walked around the house and the ABC was always on, you know. So so I, I can reference 
announcers and programs from 1960 onwards because they I, I heard them, you know, they they were there. Um, so the the so I think of it as, as probably the most important place to me outside of say my own home is the radio studio that I've been sitting in for about 20 years every afternoon. Is it the same one? Same one. Right. Um, you know, um, and and the the. As a place, it's reasonably dull. It's not dissimilar to what we're sitting in now. They're all just tables and desks and microphones and and that that sort of thing. Um, But it's a place where... Uh, I'm probably I'm probably a version of myself that I really like. You know, the the guy I like the guy on the radio. Like he's you know he's kind of fun and curious. Um, I'm also you know when I said in the beginning that I've tended to try to stimulate myself. It's like there's only certain circumstances in which I'm really fully occupied, and right. that's tends to be in a performance moment. So you you bring your best self to the studio. Yeah. So so right. in in the studio it's live to air at two in the afternoon. I am fully switched on. Right. You get you're getting me fully concentrating. At quarter past one, I'm wandering around drifting bits sort of like, ah, oh, I don't know. What you know, what'll I do now? You know, do I need to read that thing? Um, I'm not very you know, I'm not as engaged. I I tend to need an actual moment. Like it's got to be real. It's got to be sort of um, and I think that comes a lot from from music. I was a musician for many years, and music music only happens really when the audience is there, or the tape is switched on. It's, a, it's just the performance itself. It's the, it, it's the it's the it's the moment where you have to say, okay, well, this is it. I'm committing to this now. This now has to be as good as I can make it. I've got to do this for the audience. I've got to do this because we're recording this and we're finished at five. If we don't get this right, we're done. I want this to be that. That brings a whole sort of level of concentration that you just don't get at any other moment. I, I, you know, I, it's fascinating here you talk about this because I, I love the notion of you're on a tightrope. So if, mm. if your show starts at two mm. or you're going to go on stage, mm. is you have to cope with what has happened in your life. So you might have yeah. had, had an argument with your wife or, 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 or the producer or, mm. or the stage might mm. be slippy. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter because yeah. you've got to go, James. That's right. You, you know, and so you might think, be feeling depressed mm. and and want to have a lie down, mm. but you've got three people sitting in the green room going to come on your show yeah, and yeah. you've got to be James Valentine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So there's that sort, of, that, that sort of circumstance. But even just on an ordinary day, um, like in some, ways, uh, in some ways that sort of day well, I'm going to have to fight through this, so it sort of helps you concentrate. Well, what about when it's just an ordinary Tuesday? Yeah. How do you how do you actually be engaged? Well, in actual fact, I'm only engaged when it's like that. You know, like if it's like, oh, are we on at eight o'clock? Do we have to do a show? Okay, I'm there. <laughs> what? What are we doing? You know, like, I, I fully switch on. Otherwise, I am a little bit vague. Now, now you mentioned your uh, musical history, mm. and, I, and I just want to ask you about that. Is mm. you were in a rock band, mm-hmm. is that at the same time as you were on the radio? No, no. So I, um, so, so I left, I left school. I went to the, you know, more or less the, I, I went and studied music in Melbourne, studying jazz and classical saxophone. Like I was, you know, studying with a teacher. I did that for a year or two and then oh, I don't like this much, but was already working a lot. So I was working as a musician in various kind of things. I'd, I'd be working five or six nights a week because this is, this is, you know, 1980 onwards. You still have to, if you want the sound of a saxophone, you still have to have someone blowing it. You know, yeah. No sampling. There's no digital thing. There's no, and there was music everywhere. Like I was in a band, like a funny little sort of folk rock band, that we had three gigs a day. We right. had a lunchtime gig, a five o'clock gig, and then you know residencies at night from nine o'clock, sort of thing. Like we actually worked all day. We had five weekdays. We're in a wine bar between midday and two. 
And, and did you like, enjoy those gigs? No, they were horrible. But like, but, but well, you know, they were sort of fun. And I'm 19 or something, so I've got my first gigs. You know, at least I'm getting a gig. You know, so yeah. and I'm I'm trying to find out what it is to be a professional musician. I don't come from a musical background or anybody's done anything like this before, so I don't really know what it is. So I'm trying to hack my way through that. Out of that, I get into some rock bands, and like I said, I started did a year with Joe Camilleri. That puts me into the sort of Australian rock scene. So then I do Steve Cummings and Kate Sobrano and the you know people that are around Pseudo Echo, Kids in the Kitchen, you know these sort of eighties bands. From that, I end up in a band called the Models, and so the Models and I, I joined the Models about six months before they had a hit. So and then I'm on their their breakthrough album, and they said which they, they were they were perfectly successful, but a, but a like a cred band, you know, like very, very cool, very Melbourne, uh, very art sort Didn't of thing. Didn't you tour with OMD or have I? Yeah, we did it with US. So then we did a couple of US tours. And so we, we, we took off. We had a number one, Out of Mind, Out of Sight. And so because I was on that album, then I stayed in the band. So I did that for about three years. But it wasn't my, it wasn't ever really my music. And, and rock music is not my music. I, I, I'm jazz, I'm classical, you know, like I'm, I still would rather, all I, all I tend to listen to is Baroque music, you know, Vivaldi and Bach and Telemann and jazz, the jazz of the 20th so, so century. So can I hazard a suggestion? Mm. Is if you are a, an accomplished musician, which, mm. you, which you are, the, the thing that you would be asked to do as part of the model, wonderful though they, mm. they were and are, it, it would be well within your competency oh, and yeah, yeah. repetitive. Exactly. You go, James, can you play me that solo again? You go, really? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's the same thing. We're playing six or seven nights a week um, over and over and over again and you do the same set over and over once you've got the set. Because like, the rock set is often determined by the technology, not the band. The lighting guy is running the show. Mate, mate, don't don't go over the right of the stage. <laughs> and like you were there for ages, which meant that the flash pots went over off over here. I had those lights already, and this went on for like longer than it usually does. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, that, that's a, that's an argument you have after a gig. And so it's like the music is secondary to the sound guy. Mate, I'd already queued up those mics to come on, and you weren't there because you this solo just went on forever. What the hell are you doing? You know. <laughs> so, and that's the further up the scale you go, the harder it is yeah. to actually then be spontaneous you know you've, you've got to get the whole crew to be jamming you know so, so I, I, like i've got that. a theory that unless you are born to it or one of the five or six intergalactically famous people mm. that one of the worst jobs in the world is being a rock star well it's you know charlie watts says he's it's, he's been, been in the rolling stones for 40 years 27 of that was waiting around yeah um you know but like my experience was uh i, I always looked at it it took us it took us 22 hours to get on stage at 10 you know like for an hour and a half and then you know like you you've put, you've just played griffith rsl and it's midnight you're staying at the flag motor inn in Griffith <laughs> You know, you go back, you get stoned, you get up at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning because you've got to drive to Albury, where, which is four hours away, to play at the Albury RSL and you've got to check into, and you've got a sound check at five. <laughs> you know, this is a very dull existence, you know, and it goes, and it's day after day after day. You know, it's not three weeks. Like in those days, there was so much, music was the thing. Every, every town, every pub had bands, three bands a night, Often that was a standard thing. So every band was out on the road for six and seven nights a week for a year. Like the models never stopped touring. You know, we, we were in continual tour mode. We would come in and record and have a month off or something like that. But basically, the next tour was about to start. Well, like when I met my wife Joanne, I was I was in the models, 
And she wasn't part of that scene. She didn't really care and that sort of stuff. And after a month or two, she's going, what the hell is this? Like, are you ever here? And then you're so out of it that you don't know. You, 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 she'd, she'd say, so what, what's happening? What are you, are you going away? I go, I don't know. Well, is, is the tour starting? Yeah, I think it's next week. Where are you going? Don't know. Uh, when are you back? Don't know. Because I, I, I didn't have to know any of this. So, so, somebody so, would pick me up and off you'd go, you know. So I'm not condoning it, but I can absolutely imagine why rock stars do serious drugs. Oh, you just, you, you lose your brain. Like, yeah. there's nothing else to do. Um, and so, you you know, you turn to drugs. It's very, you know, I would say that there might have been 30% of the bands were reasonably clean. The rest of it is like, you know, of course you're smoking dope all day and it just becomes a food group. I mean, I considered that it was, I thought it was standard after a while um, because... Everybody did. You know, you'd get in the car. The, the standard piece of equipment you needed in a, in a rock hire car is a Frisbee because you turn the Frisbee upside down and you can roll a joint in it and it doesn't go everywhere, you know. So, you know, the Frisbee was not for exercise at lunchtime. <laughs> so thank God you found the ABC or the ABC well, found right. you. Well, it, but I just got to a point where like, I just went, look, this is not my life. I'm not intending to be a rock musician for the rest of The models sort of broke up and, 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 and I left. And I just put out looking for other work and I got an audition for a kids TV show at the ABC and I got the job so that was it I went okay well I'm done uh, I'm going to stay in Sydney now and I'm going to go off and, and do that I, I kept playing we had a band called Absent Friends which had a hit with Wendy Matthews called I Don't Want to Be With Nobody But You and that was sort of leftovers and the models and a couple of in excess and that sort of stuff and then I did Wendy's band for a, a couple of years uh, after that as well but then I just went you know no, look I'm not I'm not going to be a player as such. And I didn't play for some years. I then had a jazz quartet a couple of years ago for a couple of years, which was like I just went, you know, I just want to do the thing I actually set out to do. Can I just play? I'm just going to have a band that plays jazz. We're not going to try and do anything else. I want to play the jazz tunes I love. I want to see if I can actually play it. It was pretty good and I got to a reasonable, I got my playing back to a reasonable level and went, there you go, not bad. I, I could actually do it. Thanks, I'll... And again, I just went, that, that's enough of that now, I'll, I'll leave it. So you, you mentioned the rock car, oh, yeah. uh, which moves me on to your possession. Mm. So you have chosen a 1976 BMW 2002 mm. car. Mm. Mm. 2002 is how it's usually referred to. I ah. think you'll find... Uh, and, and from what I know, I know <laughs> a square root of fuck all about cars, right. and I care even less. Right, right. But apparently the O2 series is the series that... Broke BMW internationally. Well, it, it, it's the series just before the, your, your, your common three series, your 325, your 321. They come through in the sort of, you know, uh, mid-80s onwards. The 2000 series is sort of like a 70s, late 60s into 70s kind of series. The 2002 was a, a little sort of sporty car. It, it, it slants. So the front is on a diagonal and uh, the back is on a matching diagonal. So they're, they're a little sort of, you know, cute little thing. The reason I chose this was I have an unnatural uh, attraction and love for cars. Ah, okay. Which comes, and I don't mean that that I behave unnaturally around them. Um, the, my father was a car dealer. So, right. so when I grew up, um, he ran a small, he ran a service station and a small car dealership in Ballarat in country Victoria. He, cho- he sold Renaults, Peugeots and later on BMWs. Now, this was a ridiculous choice for country Victoria. I was going to say, who <laughs> wants, what about a Holden or a Ford? Or- exactly. Who wants a Renault 12 in Ballarat in 1972? I'll tell you who, school teachers. Who does my father hate? School teachers. <laughs> the only people coming in to, to buy cars from my father were bearded school teachers, you know, greenies, 
you know, a bit hippie. Oh, I wouldn't mind a French car. Get out of here, you bludger. You know, so... so, so Did he ever make any money? No, no, it's terrible. Um, (laughs) But I grew up around cars. Cars were everywhere. It's like, and and we had Peugeots and Renaults. We had old Peugeots, 203s, 403s, things from the 50s and 60s. My grandfather had a couple of acres out, out of town and we stored these old cars out there. Like we had, at one point, my brothers had a 1945 Citroen because um, it's sort of like you, you, because if you work with cars, you cars just turn up. You know, they just people just dump them on you. Or my father, they'd be traded in to my father. You know, he'd give them a hundred bucks for it and try and sell them a Peugeot five hundred four or something like this. You know, so so it was part of say part of my upbringing. Just as I knew my mother's reading me Winnie, Winnie the Pooh from my father and my brothers, I understood it was it was what you had to know was the model and the make and model of every car on the road. Uh, that's a 56 Vanguard standard. Um, <laughs> probably not the GT version. Not that I think they made a GT with a standard. Uh, that's, that's, your, that's an EK Holden, uh, not an EH, it's an EK. Uh, so you knew everything. Like my father, because he was a car dealer, my father knew all the number plates. So he'd go, oh, Jack sold that one. Right. Or, oh, that's one I sold a few years ago. This was like, so in Ballarat, the landscape of Ballarat to me was cars. You know, I just saw cars everywhere. And so then you had these things you desired, you know, that, oh, that's a cool car, you know, you want one of those. And so all of my brothers, one of my brothers still to this day is obsessed with collecting Renault 16s, Renault 12s, Renault 8s of the era that my father sold. These are not an interesting car. This is like collecting a Renault 12 is like collecting a Toyota Camry. You know, it's not a particular, it's not, there's nothing, you know, cool about it. Both of my brothers at one point have had to own Porsches. So they've had Porsche 911s. Both hated them. But, you know, it was this sort of did, did, did you drive now? Have you got a car? And, well, that's, and then that's the point. The, the, the peak of this was my 76 BMW 2 2 which I had a couple, you know, sort of like, and loved it and all that sort of stuff. And I, and even at the time I thought, God, it's weird the way I just love this thing. You know, I just really love this car. I'd, I'd gaze at it, you know, I'd just look at it. I love this car. It's fantastic, you know. And then I got then it sort of need a lot of money spent on it. My kids were young. <laughs> this this was when I was at primary school. When the kids were at primary school, I still had this. There were parents who wouldn't let their kids get in it because <laughs> no, there's no airbags and seatbelts and stuff. And so you'd, you'd, you'd go, oh, I can give them a lift, and you go, they are not getting in that thing. Good <laughs> lord, you know. I'm going, what? It's cool. Yeah, it's German engineering. It'll be fine. And so I eventually I sold it at that sort of point and just somebody else to restore because it, it needed the sort of full restoration by, by some point. And it's sort of like what I noticed was that was it. That was I, I, I ah, finished. you satiated I yourself. Cars started to seem less and less important. I didn't um, – but also the – it was no longer possible to own those classic cars of that era without a garage and restoration and all that sort of stuff. So I sort of lost all interest and – and now I'm more like, now I still, there's still a large part of my heart that cares about it, but it can't care about it because it just doesn't matter. Oh, it's a Subaru Forester. Yeah, great. I, I don't care. I don't, there's nothing I can attach to in modern cars because to me they're all the same car. Well, what that, is the difference between a Kia, a Hyundai and a I, Subaru? I'll tell you because we drive a 17-year-old mm. uh, Toyota Turago. Right. And the difference is, mate sliding doors. Oh, if you've got yeah. four kids, yeah, that's the go. Good. It's not yeah. really sex, rock and roll. No, but, but <laughs> no, exactly. So, it, so it, it, it's, and it's almost like, there's almost in that, in that car is also the last time I really cared about a possession. I don't think there's much I own. Even, even like my saxophone is a 1956 Selma Mark VI saxophone. It's a beautiful classic instrument. These are the prints of saxophones, that sort of stuff. But even now, I know that that could disappear. Oh, I get another one. You know, like, it's not, you know what I mean? Like, they're not, 
The world is full of stuff. It'll come and go through you. I, I really don't care that much about it. It's like guitars. You know, people go, oh, this is a beautiful guitar. There's another one. The yep. one next to it's beautiful too. You know, like they, they, they're all beautiful. They're all great. Um, I don't like, and so something about the something about the ownership of that car and then that car going. That's about the last time I really cared about any particular that's, possession. Uh, so the, the a- I don't, I'm not I'm not particularly Buddhist about it. You know, like I'm not no, sort of like. Just- I just mean I I really. The leather jacket I'm wearing, I love as much as that car. You know what I mean? But if sure. I lost it right now, eh, you know, there's another one will turn up, you know. The, the ABC website, you, you might not know that people are saying this about you, says that no one sees the world quite like James Vallant. I keep meaning to take that down. That's, I hate honestly, that. mate, tickets on yourself. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I have got to say, I, I have adored this conversation. You are so generous well, and you have been uh, just fascinating so one last trick question yes um who do you want next on five of my life oh that's good that's a good one yeah and i like that you didn't... They, they can't be dead and they can't be a fictional yeah right and i like that you didn't you know you didn't pre- you know, i haven't prepared for this so you're going to appear to so be I... a total clueless mum- so numpty. i am clueless sort of numpty as that's a scott morrison word that one <laughs> is those, it okay. some, of those, some of those numpties are doing that sort of stuff uh, who would I like to hear on Five of My Life? Well, see, I, I mean, the, I'll give you the real challenge, not somebody famous. But thank you, because you know? my dream for this is I say, and now I'm here on Five of mm. My Life with Dave, my next-door neighbour. Yeah. Because everyone, I think, is is half an hour interesting. Well, that's right. Uh, and but, but it's also someone... The, the the trick is the trick. I, I often think to this kind of form, you know, and, and with, with my own show and a lot of stuff on the ABC, is that they will they search for people whose story we don't know. Yes, you know, and trying to. I find, don't want to rehash someone's career. I don't need you know. I, I you know. I know Lane Beachley. She's great. She's yeah. fantastic. You know, that's a, it's, a, it's a great story. But we have heard that story, and she has told that story, and she's probably sick of that story. Yeah, you know? no, I'm so, with you. And, and even though this approach is good because it digs in and asks people to you know think about their life in a different kind of way. Sure. It is also then, you know, what about the what about the the, I, I, you know, often like people like the head of St Vincent's Hospital or something is like done. a really, like they can be. You suddenly go, look at what they've done. Yes, you know, uh, um, in so I don't know who that is or if the no, story no, is particularly it's done. great. We're going to get yeah. him or her on. Okay, <laughs> James Valentine, thank you for coming on Five of My Life, Mr Marsh. Pleasure. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. Listener.